Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. How y'all doing? All right, so Pastor Briscoe is still out of town on vacation. I think he's wrapping it up. So hopefully, uh, I know he'll be back next week. Uh, we had Uriah uh, preach for us last week and then um, preaching for you this morning. So if you came to see Pastor Briscoe, give it one more week and uh, he'll be back. And, and keep praying for him, praying for their safety. I think they encountered a tornado um, where they were and they were like, you know, like it was like, 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 six feet from them. I mean, it was something like really crazy. He, Brandon sent the text message like, a tornado just passed in front of us, but God preserved our lives. <laughs> like, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Your life was preserved. Thanks for updating. Um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, so be praying for him. I'm excited to, to I'm, I'm hoping he's refreshed, whole family's refreshed, and they come back to us, um, you know, ready to dive back in. So, we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning. Judges, Book of Judges. So, I love the Book of Judges. I have been studying through the Book of Judges, and I'll tell you what, if you need uh, an adventure, right, the Book of Judges is high octane, okay? It, the stuff that's in the Book of Judges, it's filled with scandal, love, war, suspense. I mean, Hollywood has nothing on what's in the Book of Judges, seriously. Am I, am I lying? I mean, just you read some of these wild stories. Judges chapter 19, all right? I can't even, and I, was, I wasn't even going to go there, but um, it's, it's, it's wild what happens in the, in the book of Judges, and here's the reality. That doesn't actually come as a surprise. As you study the book of Judges, you find out the theme, okay? And the key to understanding the book of Judges is found in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel... But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That pretty much summarizes for you the book of Judges. There's no king in Israel, and everybody's just doing what they want to do. And when I tell you it's willy-nilly, loosey-goosey, it's because it is, right? Some of the things that happen, uh, you know, this man, he makes a crazy vow and ends up sacrificing his daughter. Um, to fulfill a vow, and just the insanity that takes place in this book is uh, crazy. But you know what, this is what happens when there's no king on the throne. And this is what happens in our lives when we do stuff just the way we want to do it. Uh, and so I do have to say, Uriah did an excellent job last week of putting us in remembrance of our need to beware right, and, and, and to heed the words of Scripture. Actually, Uriah did such a good job, I ended up reworking my sermon. I was like, well, he already said it. And so I can't say that, I can't say that. I mean, like, I was like, no, can't say that, can't say that, can't, okay, let's just, but the book of Judges is a big book, so I was like, all right, that's fine, I'll just rework it and, and praise the Lord for uh, Uriah, and I think God, is, God has got something for us this morning. We're going to be talking about the threefold impact of spiritual compromise there's a threefold impact of spiritual compromise. I hope you got a handout. If you didn't, you want to get a handout. I believe in handouts. I'm not that big on PowerPoints. And so um, that's, a, that's a philosophical difference between Pastor Briscoe and I. Um, I, I. I did the PowerPoint just to submit, but left to my own devices. 
uh, you would have gotten a handout and that's it. I think that's all you need in life is a handout. Oh, okay, sorry, that, that just, that was not political commentary, I promise. All you need in life is a handout, but that's good, that's good. Um, that's a time, there's a time when I would have agreed with that. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll take something. All right, okay, let's pray. We pray one more time, and then we're going to get into this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, and Lord, um, what we're going to consider this morning is heavy. And Father, I just pray that we have open hearts to receive it and to heed it, Lord, and to do the things necessary to obey your word. And so we pray for our hearts, our minds, our lives to be transformed this morning. Meet with us, Lord. Teach us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at what does it mean to, to compromise? What does that look like? What's the impact on our lives? And the book of Judges gives us incredible insight into the cost of it. So I want to be clear about this particular point. Make no mistake about it. Compromise costs you something. Spiritual compromise costs you something. There is a price to pay. At some point, the bill comes due. And I don't know if that line sounds familiar to you. At some point, the bill comes due. I, I appreciated Pastor Sam's reference to the ancient one uh, in Avengers last week, okay? And I was going to talk about the ancient one. Now, when he talked about the ancient one, he, he painted it in a very favorable light because she's like uh, at, at the end of her life and she's telling Dr. Strange that, you know, he's not learned the most important principle of all, which is that it's not about him, right? And it's like this, all this wisdom. But see... My issue with the, the, the ancient one, okay, uh, there's that scene when uh, Mordo realizes that she's drawing power from the dark dimension, right? I don't know if you guys, who saw Doctor Strange? Okay, okay, so there's the scene. She's out there fighting, and then he looks, he's like, he sees a little thing in her forehead, and he's like, so she does draw power from the dark dimension, right? And so we find out that the ancient one is compromising, right? She's preaching against the dark dimension, but the ancient one's getting tipsy on the dark dimension. That's kind of what's happening here, right? Like, you can't tell somebody, don't, don't participate with the dark dimension, and then you taking a couple swigs yourself, right? That's kind of what happened. And what, what's amazing about that last scene is she's standing, well, she's in her ghost self, I don't know what you call it, the astral projection, and she's talking to Doctor Strange, and you would think, at least I would think at this particular moment, you know, we'd start to ask some questions about, you know, what went wrong, right? Like, how did I get at this moment? What could I have done differently, right? But no, like, she justifies her sin right up until the end. You know, you know, Dr. Strange, I just, I didn't want to draw from the dark dimension, but sometimes you have to do that for the greater good. Really? Now, if Dr. Strange was holding her accountable, he would have said, well, how did that work out for you? You did just get stabbed by your disciple, right? In part because he found out how rebellious you are, right? And you got thrown out of a portal and you just fell through a ceiling. So how'd that work out for you? Like we are all in this situation because you compromised. That's basically what happened. And so even though Hollywood tries to make it sound glorious, right? This idea of sometimes it's okay to compromise. You see even by the way she died that her compromise cost her something. Her compromise cost her something. The law of reaping and sowing, it comes true. The bill came due. And, and her compromise cost her something. Ultimately, she was killed by her own disciple. And so 
I want us to understand this, that God hates sin in, 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 in our life, in, in your life, and in my life. And he wants us to deal with it, not because he wants to keep us from fun, but because he sees the end of that sin. He sees the end of it. And so what God does for us in the book of Judges is he paints a clear picture of the compromises that the children of Israel make. And we get to see a vivid description of the outcome. We get to see a vivid description of the outcome. Now let's begin with the definition. What is spiritual compromise? So spiritual compromise, that's the willful decision of a believer to allow sin to remain. The willful decision of a believer to allow sin to remain. So I'm not talking about the areas where you just need to grow in maturity, right? I'm talking about the stuff that you and I do that we know. You know it's wrong, and for whatever reason, you just decide to keep on doing it. That's spiritual compromise. And we're going to look at briefly how the children of Israel compromise in the book of Judges. So their failure, their failure was that they didn't completely destroy the nations that God told them to destroy. And you don't necessarily have to go over there, but maybe it's on the screen. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is what God tells them to do. He says, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save nothing alive that breatheth. He's very clear. What do we kill? everything that breathes. He says, save nothing alive that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done unto their God, so, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. And so he says, leave nothing alive that breathes, kill everything. Now that might seem a little extreme to you, right? That's not politically correct to kill everything that breathes. Um, I don't have time to go through it, but read Leviticus chapter 20. Read Leviticus chapter 20, and you can get a, a clear picture of what these people were guilty of. Okay, so homosexuality, fornication, adultery, but that's just the beginning. They sacrificed their babies on altars to idols by burning them. They also practiced incest, they practiced cannibalism, and they practiced bestiality. So God had a list of issues with these people. And he said, kill all of them. So you read Leviticus chapter 20, and if you have an issue with that, you have to take it up with God. All right. Key point number one, as they were commanded to put these nations to death, so are we commanded to mortify, put to death the works of the flesh in our lives and leave nothing alive. We are commanded to mortify the works of the flesh in the same manner, leave nothing alive. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So why should we take that position on sin? What's the big deal, right? Why does it all have to die? That seems a little extreme, but here's the thing you got to understand, and this is key point number two. Even born-again Christians are capable of unspeakable wickedness when sin is allowed to thrive. We are capable of unspeakable wickedness when sin is allowed to thrive. I've heard too many stories of believers that thought it never could be them. I didn't ever see myself doing something like that. I thought it would never be me. And here's the reality, after just living on this earth 
a few years, I've learned that it could be me. I've learned that it could be me. I could be one of the people to do that. And so I've got to mortify the deeds of my flesh. You know, we talk a lot about how God has a plan for our lives, and I believe that. The best thing a man can do is figure out what God's plan is for him and do it. Figure out why God has you here and do it. That's the best thing a man can do. That needs to be your focus, but how many of you know that Satan has a plan for your life too? He actually has a plan for your life. He's got a path for you. And God sees where he wants to take you. And how does Satan get you on that path? He gets you on that path through spiritual compromise. That spiritual compromise is leading you somewhere. It's leading you somewhere, and that's what we're going to look at. So we need to understand the threefold impact of spiritual compromise and deal with it. Because in a room this large, I suspect that there are people here who may be struggling with spiritual compromise, that very thing. So let's dive into it. Impact number one, spiritual compromise. Judges chapter one, sin becomes your tyrant. When you compromise with sin, sin becomes your tyrant. Look at Judges chapter one, verses 18 and 19. Says, and Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. Verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Now understand this, God had already commanded them to, to, to completely destroy these people, and it's interesting that you see this. This intrigues me. There's something wrong in this verse, right? It starts out, verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah. And so how do we get from the Lord was with Judah to, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron? Do you think God's in heaven going, I don't know what I'm going to do. They got chariots of iron. <laughs> do you think that's God's position? Of course not. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? See, this pictures for us the difficult sins in our lives. The Bible calls them besetting sins. You just keep struggling with it. Every believer will face chariots of iron. There are believers in this room, you have chariots of iron in your life, things that, that seem to be stopping you, things that you're, you're struggling with driving out. But look at what God does to those chariots of iron just a few chapters over. Go over to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4 and verse 13. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron and all the people that were with him, from Harosheth of the Gentiles until the river of Kishon, Verse 16, drop down to verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. But Barak pursued after the chariots and the hosts unto Harasheth of the Gentiles, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. Now pay attention there. They fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Chariots of iron weren't a problem for the Lord. And I like the fact that they fell on the edge of the sword. Because we have a sword today, don't we? It's the word of God. You have a way to deal with your chariots of iron. See, the declaration of Scripture is that God is with you. So if the issue was not with the strength of God, then the issue was with them. If they couldn't get those chariots of iron, the issue wasn't with God, it was with them. And likewise, the issue with the chariots of iron in your life, in my life, the seemingly tough sins, the issue is your heart towards God. 
So what did they do? Back over in Judges chapter 4, verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt at Harosheth of the Gentiles. Verse 3, and here's the key. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So what did they do? They cried out to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you cried out to the Lord for the chariots of iron in your life? When was the last time you cried out to the Lord over it? I submit to you that the truth is, the sin besets you because you love it. Because you love it. You get an, an, an awesome picture of that over in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 31, listen to this. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea or he that lieth upon the top of a mass. Verse 35, they have stricken me, thou shalt say. And I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? Then what does it say? I will seek it yet again. So this is the description of a man that has sin ruling over him, has an addiction ruling over him, and he's describing the pain of that addiction. And at the very end of it, he says what? I will seek it yet again. That's the issue with the chariots of iron in our life. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and here's the truth, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So it's ruling over you because you want it. But watch the end result of that. Go back over to Judges chapter 1 and drop down the 34. Judges chapter 1, verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. So these people that they're supposed to be destroying literally pushed them back up into the mountain. So they actually lost ground. They actually lost ground. So through a lack of faith, they failed to fight to remove the difficult sins. And so if a sin has become your tyrant this morning, if sin is ruling over you, I want to encourage you to do two things. The first thing you need to do is get back in the fight. Start fasting. Start memorizing scripture. Don't just lay down and let it run all over you. Don't just accept defeat because you think it's too strong for you. And then number two, cry out to God. And what I love about the book of Judges is that God delivered them knowing they would be back in the same mess again the very next chapter. And you see these cycles of sin and how they cry out to God and God delivers them. But can I tell you something? As crazy as it sounds, that lets me know there's hope for me. That I can cry out to God and God will deliver me. Even if that means I'll be back in the same mess. But you got to get back in the fight. you got to cry out to God. And some of you have stopped fighting because you think the chariots of iron are too much, but they're not. What is too much is our wicked refusal to fight until God brings about deliverance. 
our wicked refusal to fight until God brings about deliverance. I don't know when deliverance comes for your particular struggle, but I know you need to keep fighting until it does come. You need to keep fighting until it does come. Key point number three, compromise with sin is never neutral. You are either gaining ground or losing it. You're either growing in faith or backsliding, but you are not staying in the same spot. You are not staying in the same spot. It's never neutral. So don't believe a lie. And so you have to fight. You have to. Stay in the fight. You have to fight. Impact number two. Sin makes you tolerant. Sin makes you tolerant. Over back in Judges chapter 1, verse 21, says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem until this day. That word dwell is translated as married, settle, continue, and remain. And so the issue here is that they decided to live in proximity to these people and their wicked works. Now, I know in today's world, tolerance is touted as a virtue. It's something we should aspire to according to the world. We just need more tolerance. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has a different perspective on tolerance. Go over to Revelation chapter 2. He actually commends the church in Revelation chapter 2 for being intolerant. He commends them for being intolerant. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Here it is. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You can't put up with it. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars and has borne and has patience, and for my namesakes has labored and has not fainted. Verse 6, but this thou hast, this is what you have to your commendation, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He commends them for hating the things that he hates. This is what you have to your credit. You hate the things that I hate. And I don't know that you know this. You should. God hates things. Did you know that? You don't have to read the Bible very far to understand that. There are things that God hates. And I know that's not politically correct. And technically, all of this qualifies as hate speech. It does. God commends it. And you don't have to read your Bible very far to understand that God hates sin. So key point number four, you are spiritually compromised when you choose to simply tolerate that which God hates. When you choose to simply tolerate that which God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. God hates these things. And then, of course, Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 4. 
Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. And I know the response to this, and I know maybe some of you are, are thinking this. We're supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. We're supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. And I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. We are to hate the sin and love the sinner. But here's my question. What does hating the sin look like? I think we could all give a reasonable explanation on what loving the sinner looks like. My question is, what does hating the sin look like? Is your hatred of sin reflected in what you look at on TV? Is your hatred of sin reflected in what you listen to? Is your hatred of sin demonstrated in how you talk and conduct yourself? Is, do you really hate sin? Now, I'm going to give you a very clear way you can know if you hate sin or not. Go over to Psalms 119. I'm give you a very clear way you can know. I wonder if I hate sin. Okay, we're going to answer that question. Psalm 119. Give you a little background here. This is uh, David writing, and what you see in this, this psalm, and it's a beautiful psalm, it's about his love for the Word of God. And, 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 and I would tell you that he was a man after God's own heart because of his love for the Word of God and because that was the thing that was always on his mind and the thing that he was always pursuing and the thing that he was desperate about. But look at this, Psalm 119, verse 136. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. And then drop down to verse 158. Psalm 119, verse 158. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved. It hurt my heart because they kept not thy word. So when was the last time you were grieved at the display of sin? When was the last time it grieved you? When we witness gross violations of God's word, that should grieve our heart. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. We've become tolerant of it. We shouldn't just be able to look at it and keep moving. No big deal. Live and let live. It should grieve you. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 9. This passage is wild. I'm just preparing you for it, okay? Go over to Ezekiel chapter 9. This passage is wild. So God's dealing with the idolatry in Ezekiel chapter 9. And let's just start from verse 1. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with the rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. So God's getting ready to give them their marching orders. Now watch this, verse 3. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. 
And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. Verse 4, and the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Mark all the people who grieve at sin. Verse 5, and to the others he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city, smite, let, let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Verse 6, slay utterly young and old, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And this is the part that gets me. He says, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Start with the people that should know better. Start with the people that should know me. Start with the people that should hate sin. He says, begin at my sanctuary. And too often we celebrate it. We don't defend it. We don't, we don't, we don't denounce it. We celebrate it. We defend it. Too often we do that. And so let me, let me ask you a question. If that were to happen to Kansas City, and God shows up with his servants outside the city, and he says, go through the city and just put a mark on everyone's head that's grieved at the abominations of the city and kill everyone else, would you make the list? Would I make the list? Am I actually grieved at sin? See, what we learn from Psalm 119 is that there is a connection between a hatred of sin and a love of God's word. There is a connection between a hatred of sin and a love of God's word. So you show me someone whose heart is in love with God's word, and I'll show you someone that hates sin and is grieved by it. That hates sin and is grieved by it. And so key point number five, true hatred for sin produces grief at the display of gross sin. True hatred for sin produces grief at the display of gross sin. If gross sin does not grieve you, and if it doesn't grieve me, it's because I've only been tolerating it. We've only been tolerating it. And while we're in the neighborhood, the question should be, what is gross sin? Over in Galatians chapter 5, you get a nice, robust list of gross sin. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, make the list, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's gross sin, anything that's on this list. And when we encounter it, we should be grieved by it. And so part of the solution for the besetting sins in our lives is that we just need to cultivate a greater hatred for all sin. We just need to cultivate a greater hatred for all sin. The more time you spend in the Word of God, the more your heart will be grieved at the sight of sin. I can't celebrate it. I can't look at it. And so 
We've looked at two effects of spiritual compromise so far. We looked at how sin becomes your, your tyrant. We just looked at how sin makes you tolerant. Final effect, impact number three, sin becomes your treasure. Sin becomes your treasure. Go back over to Judges chapter 1. Verse 27, Judges chapter 1, verse 27. Now keep in mind, they're supposed to be completely destroying these people, casting them out, leave nothing alive. This is what they decide to do. Verse 27, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor the Tanakh, her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblim and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. So they got them paying taxes. Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron nor the inhabitants of Nahal, but the Canaanites dwell among them and became tributaries. And you read that on through verse 33, how they, how they made them tributaries. They're getting taxes. They're, they're collecting taxes for them. So basically, these are sins with benefits. That's what this is. These are sins with benefits. Do you think that God looked at this and said, I am so glad they were able to collect a check from these people? No. So this pictures how we will decide to manage our sin for its benefit while not completely destroying it. So the sin becomes our treasure. But here's the problem with that. At some point, if all you're doing is just managing your sin for its benefits, at some point that sin's going to get the upper hand. That's the thing. At some point that sin gets the upper hand. And so you know it's wrong and you might even speak against it, but you're dabbling with it yourself. And what's interesting, back in verse 28, what does it say? When Israel was strong... It came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to to tribute. And so, this is key point number six. If you are strong enough to manage your sin, then you are strong enough to trust God to kill it. If you're strong enough to manage it, you're strong enough to trust God to kill it. And look at the end result. I don't want you to miss this. Look at the end result of their idolatrous practices. Go over to Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Verse 12. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, don't miss Satan's strategy here. His strategy here, you get a, get a look at it over in Revelation chapter 2. You don't have to go there. Just listen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, uh, God says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Okay, so let me talk about the doctrine of Balaam so that you can understand. So... Balaam could not curse Israel. He couldn't curse Israel, so he's like, here's a strategy. Here's what we're going to do. I can't actually curse them directly, but we can get them to intermingle with these foreign nations, and they can learn their ways, and they can start eating these 
these forbidden things and they can start fornicating with these people. And when that happens, God will judge them. And that's what the tempter does. He tempts you with something to get you to partake and then God judges you. You saw that in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Satan comes and he tempts them, right? They partake of the forbidden fruit, and then what else do you read about the serpent past his judgment, right? Like, he's not there to deal with the consequences of what happened to Adam and Eve. God meted out those consequences to Adam and Eve. Do you see that? That's the strategy. The tempter comes and he tempts you, and then when you give in to the temptation, he's gone, and now God is dealing with you. Because God in his righteousness, he's not going to let you slide. He's going to judge you. So these benefits come at a steep cost. Judges chapter 2, verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them. This is God doing these things. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, here it is, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed, the Bible says, because God was against them. And I've seen this play out over and over in the life of believers. They give in to some temptation through some spiritual compromise, and now God is judging them. And in partaking, you bring yourself under the judgment of God. So God ultimately rejects them, and you see that over in 2 Kings. Just listen to this. You don't have to go there. 2 Kings chapter 17, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel, which they had made. And the, and the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. So God did these things. And this is the point, key point number seven. Get this down. The great deception of spiritual compromise is that you think it's only costing you partially. When Satan's plan is that it would ultimately cost you everything. Their compromises in the beginning seem to only cost them partially. But in the end, it cost them everything because God rejected them. So brothers and sisters, we need to, I need to understand that there is a cost to spiritual compromise. And can we go ahead and have the band come up, please? It becomes your tyrant. It rules over you. It makes you tolerant. You accept that which you should hate and abhor, and then it becomes your treasure. Now, the good news is, I know, it was a lot of bad news. I'm starting with some good news. How about that? It's heavy, heavy, heavy. It started off with the ancient one, right? Tried to keep it light, but then we, we got into it, and, you know, it's what it, it's what it became, okay? The good news is that Christ is the answer for your compromise, so maybe you are here today and you realize that you've just been living a bad life and, and doing things wrong, and maybe you don't even know God. Listen to what Scripture says, John 10.10, 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Christ wants you to have an abundant life. He doesn't want to hold something from you. 
that you could benefit from, but the sin that we compromise with, it, it only brings about our death and destruction. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And so the good news this morning is that if you are a sinner, you're in good company. I'm a sinner too, but I know Christ. And so put a stake down. Uh, let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to ask a couple questions. If you're here this morning, I want to pray for you if you have need of prayer. And so my first question is, is there anybody that would say, pray for me, sin has become my tyrant, it's ruling over me. Please pray for me. I want to pray for you. I see your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. Sin has become my tyrant, it's ruling over me. I see your hands. Pray for me. Is there anyone that would say, I know I've become tolerant of sin? Please pray for me. I see your hands. I see your hands. I've become tolerant of sin when I should abhor it. I see your hands. Is there anyone that would say, I'm treasuring my sin when I should be killing it? I see your hands. I want to pray for you. I'm treasuring my sin when I should be killing it. And is there anybody that would say, you know what? I don't know God. I don't, know, um, I don't know the Lord, and, and, and I know I've done bad things. Please pray for me. If that's you, I want to pray for you. So if you raised your hand, we're going to sing, and I want to invite you to come forward and talk to somebody because the beautiful thing is, is you don't have to leave the same way you came. That... Just like God delivered the, the children of Israel and judges, he, he, he can and will deliver you. And, and don't listen to the lie of Satan that, oh, you can't be free and you'll just struggle again. Okay, well, God will deliver you again. But make the decision to come forward. Let somebody pray for you. Make the decision to get back in the fight. So I'm going to pray, and then while we worship, if you have a decision to make and you need to talk to someone, come forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your grace, and um, Father, there were several hands raised, Father, just people being honest about where they're at, Lord, and this was a message for me, Lord. You, you, you dealt with me over stuff uh, in my life, and I pray for those that raise their hand, Lord, that they would have um, the courage, um, the willingness to just move forward and, and put a stake down, Father. If they need accountability, if they would seek it, if they need prayer, that they would seek it, Lord, um, because you're worth being right with, Father. And uh, you're worth us mortifying the deeds of our flesh. Uh, Lord, I pray for those that may not know you this morning, Father. In a room this big, I'm sure there are, are some, and that they would come to know you in the pardon of their sins. And so, Lord, have your way this morning with our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.